0: And idols at their core, they pretend to meet a need that only God can meet. And to get rid of them, we follow the same pattern that we saw in this confrontation. We identify them as counterfeits. We call them out. And then we replace them with God. And this is exactly what happened last week. Baal was exposed as a fake, as a non-God. And God showed himself as the replacement, as the true God. And we responded by, by writing down our idols on, on an index card and, and shredding them in a, in a paper shredder up here. And I threw that stuff away where it belongs. And we, we, we prayed to receive God to meet these needs that we have in the place of our idols. So on the heels of this, this great victory, this great vindication from last week, as our story continues, it's, it's surprising to see Elijah's situation And we might expect him to be honored by the king now, or rejoicing in God's revelation of himself to the people, or or praising God for his faithfulness. But what we see is something quite different. So turn with me please to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19, we're going to read the whole chapter again, and we're going to start right in verse 1. So listen carefully with me to what God's word says in 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha. Son of Shaphat from Abel Mechalah to to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any escape who escape from the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So as we start out in the text today, Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel, makes a solemn oath that she will kill Elijah. And Elijah flees to Beersheba in Judah. This is the southern kingdom now, out of Ahab's direct control. And Elijah leaves his servant behind there and takes a day's journey into the wilderness and here, Elijah just, he reaches his limit. He comes to the end of himself and prays for death. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. And so it's fair to say that Elijah has reached a low point here. I mean, the, the, the queen has promised to kill him. He's completely alone in the wilderness once again, a lot like the first week in First Kings 17. And he prays for death. So clearly, Elijah is in no victory parade after last week's text. And on the surface, that may be surprising. But as we think about Elijah's position and his temperament, it actually isn't too surprising after all if we remember the simple fact that Elijah is at war. Elijah is fighting a battle for God and his kingdom. And he's been engaged in this battle for over three years now. It's taken him into the wilderness where he got food from scavenger birds. It's taken him to a foreign land where he lived with a widow and her son. And now he's just successfully executed this major offensive against the enemy. And he's taken territory, so to speak. 450 of Baal's prophets are dead. The people of Israel have witnessed the humiliation and judgment of these false prophets and the humiliation of Baal, who turns out to be a a non-God. And so quite naturally, the the enemies of God's kingdom, those who are opposed to God's rule, in this case it's Ahab and Jezebel, they fight back. I mean, however decisive the victory, Jezebel isn't going to take that kind of defeat lying down. And there really isn't much difference today. Our enemy, Satan, and those who serve him, they fight back. And we see this in Revelation 12. We see the scene where Satan's defeated, hurled to the earth, but he doesn't quit, even though he knows his time is short. The forces of evil have been at war with God's rule and reign for a long time now. This started in the early chapters of Genesis, and it's not going to finally be over until the end of Revelation. And every place you look in the Bible, when faithful people of God advance, proclaiming him, obeying him, they meet opposition. From the prophets in the Old Testament to the apostles in the New Testament. And by following God, Elijah is engaged in this battle. And if you fight, you can fully expect that the enemy will fight back. In fact, the amount of pushback and retaliation you receive from the enemy is going to be proportional to how much you threaten and attack him and his territory. We're going to talk about this a little more later on, but for now it's enough to know that Elijah is experiencing enemy retaliation. He's a wanted man, and he's all alone in the fight, or so he thinks. So how does God respond to this? Well, first, Elijah is met with God's gracious provision... He gets some bread and some water, uh, possibly reminding him of how God provided miraculously for him and the widow during the drought. He sleeps, he gets some more food which strengthens him for his journey, and then he travels these 40 days and 40 nights before winding up at Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, your radar might pick up a little bit with this next scene, because we notice several parallels here between Elijah and Moses, Of course, Elijah's at Mount Sinai, which is where Moses received the law of God in Exodus. There's 40 days and 40 nights of Elijah traveling, 40 days and 40 nights of Moses on the mountain. In both texts, God prepares Moses and Elijah for his appearing, saying that he's going to pass by. God appears to both Moses and Elijah. Moses is in a cleft in the rock. Elijah's in a cave. Both have their faces covered. Now, the point of all these parallels is just to emphasize Elijah's position and God given authority as a prophet leader of Israel. Now, with Moses, God meets with him primarily to give the covenant, to make the covenant with Israel. With Elijah, God meets with him primarily to enforce it. And the interaction between God and Elijah is really interesting it's kind of hard to understand God asks what are you doing here Elijah and so of course this isn't Elijah I, I didn't expect you what are you doing here right this this is a common thing we'll see it in how God interacts with his people he asks a question to call them to account this happens in the Garden of Eden when Adam hides God says Adam where are you not Adam where are you Adam where are you right this is no different than when I hear my two boys fighting up in their bedroom and making a racket and I walk up and I say, what are you guys doing? I, I know what's going on, right? But I'm calling them to account. I'm getting them to answer for themselves. And so Elijah responds to God in verse 10, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. He says he's very zealous. He's actually adding emphasis to a word in the Hebrew that's already emphatic. Here is wholehearted, full throttle devotion to God, white hot zeal. And we gain explicit insight into Elijah's depression. He feels both threatened and alone. And God's response is to pass by Elijah, to show himself. And there's a great wind followed by an earthquake, followed by fire. But the text says each time that the Lord is not in these. And then there's this gentle whisper. And in the King James Version, this is translated as a still small voice. Uh, Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Other translations say it's the sound of sheer silence. Silence. The the language underneath this is actually really enigmatic and hard to understand so the meaning is much debated. There's actually a compelling case that the proper translation here is a roaring thunderous voice which would be consistent with other appearances of God on Sinai. But thankfully there's not much at stake here. It doesn't matter much which translation you choose. What matters is that these dramatic natural phenomena don't 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 end with, with God. They precede the Lord's coming. He's not in them. And when he comes, he actually speaks. See, this is another shot at Baal. Since Baal would end with these cosmic phenomena. He's just the earthquake. He's just the fire. He's just the wind. Our God, Elijah's God, comes and speaks. He relates to Elijah. He communes with him. And so after this encounter, we repeat repeat the previous interaction. God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah issues the same complaint. I've been very zealous for you, now they're trying to kill me. Why the repetition? It almost reminds us of, of Jesus questioning Peter three times at the end of John's gospel. Jesus says three times, do you love me? Now in this case, Jesus is reinstating and commissioning Peter. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion. And now Peter affirms his love for Jesus three times. Jesus knows the answer, of course, but he's impressing on Peter that Peter really does love him. Peter wouldn't be in that situation if he didn't. And it's similar in the text today. The repetition is God impressing upon Elijah that he, God, has called him there. And that God has a purpose for him. I mean, why would Elijah be there if not for God's call on his life? It's Elijah's obedience to God and God's provision for Elijah that brings him there. Why would you be here, Elijah, if not to hear me and obey? Elijah could have very well responded, just said, I'm here because you're my God. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus follows each each question with a command. And so also here, God follows these questions with a command. He recommissions Elijah. Elijah's given three tasks, and each of them is a piece of retribution to Israel. These tasks are enforcing the sanctions of the covenant. Remember, Elijah's enforcing the covenant, which Israel has broken through their idolatry. Sanctions is just the fancy word for punishments, for breaking the covenant. So the first thing he's told to do is to anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Now, Hazael is going to become a powerful king who wages war against Israel. And he takes territory away from them. You see this in in 2 Kings. And so God is judging the Israelite kings. Because the Israelite kings, they went and married the daughters of foreign kings to establish alliances and gain protection. This is why Ahab married Jezebel. And this is in violation of God's clear command not to do that. And now, instead of offering protection, a foreign king is going to bring judgment on them. Second, he's to anoint Jehu over over Israel. And Jehu will enact judgment on Ahab's family. All his household is going to be killed, including Jezebel. And Jehu effectively destroys Baal worship in Israel. He tears down the temple of Baal. He kills Baal's prophets. The temple, it says in the text, afterwards is used as a latrine. And lastly, he's to anoint Elisha as his successor. See, Israel has tolerated false prophets. Now there's a true prophet. Another prophet of God, like Elijah, will bring a greater measure of God's judgment to the nation. And in 2 Kings, we'll see Elijah, Elisha, has a double portion of Elijah's ministry. And God concludes this recommissioning of Elijah with equal parts correction and encouragement. There are over 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. In other words, you are not the only one left who follows me. You are not alone. So given some new orders, is Yahweh Elijah's God? Of course, he obeys. And in the next scene, we see him call Elisha to ministry. So Elijah anoints Elisha. And you see, Elisha is very prosperous. He has 12 yoke of oxen. This denotes great wealth. And there might even be some symbolic value here, as 12 represents the 12 united tribes of Israel. And although Elisha stops to say goodbye to his parents, he leaves everything to follow Elijah. He leaves his family, kills his oxen, burns the plowing equipment. His devotion to following Elijah is clear from the outset. There's no turning back for him. And Elisha will carry on Elijah's ministry. And it's actually under his watch, Elisha's watch, that Hezael and Jehu become kings. So let's ask the question we asked last week and the week before. What does this story show us? How does God act in this situation? How has God acted in history towards his people? we see a faithful man of God on the front lines of a war get to the end of himself and wish for death. And he meets with God on the mountain of God. How does God respond? Initially, we could say God responds to Elijah in three ways. He strengthens him with his provision for the journey to Sinai. He meets with him on the mountain. He speaks to him and gives him fresh purpose. And he reminds him that he's not alone, even gives him Elisha to walk alongside him. But the real heart here of God's response is renewed purpose for Elijah. The strengthening and the provision in the desert helps get Elijah to the point of receiving new purpose. The reminder that he's not alone is additional strength and comfort to carry out his new purpose. And we see straight away that Elijah re-engages. He leaves the wilderness and he anoints Elisha. And later on, he's going to confront Ahab again, and he'll ultimately confront his son Ahaziah. So this is actually quite remarkable. See, God answers an embattled, depressed, but faithful follower with fresh purpose. Why, Why would Elijah need that over all other things? Why not some affirmation? Why not some comfort? I mean, he gets these in a way, but the main event here in God's interaction is a list of things to do. God effectively says, get up and re-engage. I have more yet for you to do. And it works. It works. Elijah re-engages. Why? Well, the reason is because God's purposes give us meaning in our suffering. God's purposes give us meaning in our suffering. When something, anything, is challenging for us and requires sacrifice or effort or suffering, we need purpose. Nothing will sap our energy faster or discourage us more quickly than a lack of purpose for what we're doing. You know, a stark example of this can be seen in the American culture during the Vietnam War. You you can't talk about the war in Vietnam without noting the opposition to the war in the United States. It, It was tremendously unpopular. And one of the favorite protest songs of the time was written by this musician named Country Joe McDonald. And the first line of the song was, One, two, three, what are we fighting for? And there was this famous debate held in 1965 about the war and the moderator posed the question, why are we there? Why are we even in Vietnam? Now the war itself and the opposition to it is way more complicated and, and nuanced than we could ever discuss here. But you can't deny a major theme you see as you study this war is that people didn't understand the purpose. What was the point? You could contrast this with World War II. I mean the purpose here... Responding to the aggression and the real evil of the Axis powers was clear as day. The philosopher Thomas Carlyle said, A man without purpose is like a ship without a rudder. A waif, a nothing, a no man. The evangelist Billy Sunday put it like this, More men fail through lack of purpose than lack of talent. Aren't some of your toughest times when you don't have anything to aim for There's no goal, there's no purpose. You're getting banged up in life and you don't have any real reason for it. You don't know what it's for. I mean, it's no accident that Rick Warren's purpose-driven life has sold over 30 million copies. We feel it. We hunger for purpose from God. Because God's purposes give us meaning in our suffering. Life is hard. It's challenging. It requires sacrifice and tremendous effort. And we can't continue in this fight unless we have purpose in it. We need a, direct, a direction, a mission. Purpose gives our lives and our suffering meaning. It gives meaning to our lives. And we need that like we need oxygen. You can see this so clearly as you, as you study and consider atheism. I mean, lack of meaning is one of the major practical shortcomings of atheism. Because on an atheistic worldview, with no God, no afterlife, nothing at all but the natural world, life doesn't have any meaning. Our lives are pointless. All the joy, disappointment, sorrow, elation, victory, defeat that you experience in life is just chemistry. It's no more meaningful than shaking up a soda can and watching it fizz. Maybe it's more chemically complicated, but it's not any more meaningful. There's a philosopher, Lauren Isley, who paints the picture like this. He says, on an atheistic worldview, you are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of time plus matter plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Now, we can try to manufacture meaning, which is what many honest atheist philosophers have tried to do. Jean-Paul Sartre tried this. And even more recently, this guy named L.D. Rue tried to create something called the noble lie to pretend that the universe and our existence actually mattered. See, he recognized that without purpose, without meaning, the human race can't survive, uh, personally or socially, And I don't use this illustration to beat up on on atheists, but just to show that we all hunger for meaning. Life is absurd and intolerable without it. We need meaning in our lives, and it comes from purpose. So as as we look at this text as Christians, we need to remind ourselves that there's another dimension to this. Because in our lives, we too are at war. This is the same war as Elijah, really. And it's every bit as real as Elijah experienced. We are at war. Uh, Paul's famous passage in Ephesians 6 sums it up nicely. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul goes on with this great exhortation to put on God's armor. You only wear armor when you're in a battle, when you're at war. And our enemy is Satan. He's decisively defeated, yet he still wages war against God's people. Peter warns us about this in in 1 Peter 5. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. As I mentioned earlier, in Revelation 12, we see the dragon, the devil, cast down to the earth. But he goes off to wage war against those who follow Jesus. So let me give you just a small example from my own life, just, just to keep it juicy here. I'll share something personal. Okay. So some of, you may, some of you may know that as a Christian, <clears throat> I've struggled with depression. And I would have a, a day or a week where I was mostly functional, but internally I had given up on life. I, I really lacked any, any real hope or enthusiasm or interest for anything at all. And, and secretly, I hoped that I would die. And these these episodes would, would eventually go away, but three months later, it happened all over again. And by the time I was engaged to my wife, Catherine, I had sought professional help. And, and nothing really seemed to work, including medication. And so my first year of marriage was marked by these deep valleys of depression, I wouldn't be able to even look my wife in the eyes. I really just wanted to, to die, and I, I hated myself for it. And there was something inside of me that was resistant and defiant, that refused to ask for prayer for help, almost as if I wanted to stay depressed. See, I didn't have any enthusiasm for even getting better. I, I'd, I'd given up. And one night, I was, I'm, I'm on the couch lying in my wife's lap, just staring into space, wishing for death. And unprompted, she started to pray for me out loud. Now, within a minute of that prayer, and I do not exaggerate here, I was a completely different person. So I looked at my wife and I said, Kath, you know, I think we're on to something here. I think this is spiritual warfare. I think this is oppression. This is an attack. And from that point on, the depression came, but the prayers of my faithful wife immediately lifted it every time. I would be so low, I couldn't even speak to her. She'd pick it up, she'd start to pray, and inside, I'd I'd even dread hearing the name Jesus. And I'd wince as she said it, but the moment of her saying his name, I would break down, and within minutes, I'd be a new person. Hopeful, optimistic, making jokes, laughing, thanking God, renewed zeal for life. And now by God's grace and the, and the faithfulness of my wife, this depression's mostly a, a memory now. It's a testimony. But when it comes again, we, we know how to handle it. Now hear me, I, I have to say this. This is my story, which I walked out in community and with prayer. This doesn't mean that anybody with depression just needs prayer. I could just as well have had a physiological problem that God could have been addressing through modern medicine or a psychological problem that could be addressed through counseling or all the above. But in my case, this was a clearly spiritual warfare. Because I, like you, was at war. The enemy was trying to derail me. I just started off in a marriage. I was in seminary. I was contributing to my church. He was trying to frustrate me, derail me, and take me out of the game. Now, don't just believe my story. Talk to any mature believer who bears fruit for the kingdom of God, and you will hear story after story after story, often far more dramatic than mine, because there's a war on, and we're all involved. And because we're at war, we need purpose, or we'll give up, we'll become wearied and ineffective. God's purpose gives our lives a meaning, and we need that to survive it's God who gives us this, both generally in Scripture, but also specifically. Right? God's general purpose for all humankind is, is graciously given to us straight out of the pages of the Bible. Of loving one another, believing in his son Jesus, turning from sin, glorifying God, being thankful, telling the world about Jesus. These are general purposes for all of us. But he also has specific purposes for us, like Elijah receives here. And they can only come one way. They come from a relationship with God. Elijah encountered God and had relationship with him. God spoke with him and gave him new purpose. If we're after the same thing, we too need that communion, that relationship with God. And that only happens through faith in his son, through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus is what restores our broken relationship with God. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us, to reprove us, to strengthen us. So we can hear him and follow him. We're made for this. We're made for relationship with God. And we're not going to find real, lasting, deep meaning. Anywhere else but in his purposes for us. Identity and value that can't be taken away by anything purpose that transcends circumstance, meaning that makes our suffering worthwhile. It actually matters. Our lives actually matter. They have eternal significance. The things we do here matter forever. The way we affect people and touch people for Christ, it matters. Our lives really matter. There actually is justice. There actually is punishment for evil and reward for good. Everything we're about, this whole project, it matters through God's purposes in our lives. It gives our lives meaning. A man named Viktor Frankl was a, a Jewish neuroscientist and psychologist during the Second World War. And as the Holocaust raged on through Europe, he, like so many others, was imprisoned in a concentration camp. And though he suffered dearly himself the scientist in him was still analyzing what was going on around him and he survived this ordeal and was liberated in 1945 and afterwards he wrote this famous book of reflections during of this time called man's search for meaning and in it he writes this he says there is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning in one's life. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. See, in the concentration camp, you experience the worst kind of suffering that this earth can offer. You're stripped of everything. Everything. Family, freedom, money, position, health, comfort, peace, beauty, everything. And Frankel noticed that the people who made it through this extreme suffering had meaning in their lives. They had something that transcended everything. It transcended everything they lost and it couldn't be taken away. They had purpose and meaning in the midst of their suffering. Now, in Elijah, all the saints in the Bible and us, we're no different. God's purposes give us meaning in our suffering. So as we respond today, uh, the band can come on up. Let me be so bold as to address God's question to Elijah to you all today. What are you doing here? Why are you here today? Are you not here because God has called you? Has he not engineered your life and circumstances to bring you to this point, this moment in history, right now? And perhaps you're here because you're not sure about God. You're you're seeking. A friend invited you, you saw the website, whatever. Aren't you here because God brought you here? Do you maybe feel the sting of the pointlessness of life without God? Maybe today is the day you accept Christ as your Savior. You restore that relationship with the one you were created for. And you receive fresh purpose in your life. To live for God instead of for yourself. Perhaps you're here because you love God. Like Elijah, Yahweh is your God. And you've chosen to follow him are you weary are you at the end of yourself well praise be to God if you have a pulse God has purpose for you and it matters it matters deeply the 19th century missionary Henry Martin said if God has work for me to do I cannot die David Jeremiah restated it like this a man of God and the will of God is immortal until his work is done maybe you're not weary but you're floating around you have nothing to aim for wherever you are let's pray this morning for an encounter with God that he would grant us fresh purpose maybe this is a, a restating of what you already know Maybe it's specific, maybe it's general, but let's pray and listen to our God. Brothers and sisters, we are at war. We need God's purposes in our lives. We need that direction. God's purposes give us meaning in our suffering.